Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is July 18, 2013. This is episode 1167 of the Survival Podcast. And I am back from Montana. I've actually been back for two days, but I'm back on the air. Uh, we did have some downtime during uh, my absence, and I did uh, recommend several different... Um, Episodes from the past, it seemed like people liked them. It pe seemed like people really loved the episode that I did on Monday. Actually, I did that the week before, but the episode that I published on Monday that was a new episode uh, that was about you know modern survival philosophy and how to really integrate it into your life, how to use it as a thinking process. I try to do more things like that for you in the future because it seems like it's always a home run when I do. Of course, I don't want to do the same thing every day, try to jumble it up, mix it up. So today I'm back to you with an interview. I have Lori and Jeff Haynes. Jeff is a 24-year uh, veteran of the Marine Corps, and Lori and Jeff together have found at a company called Dripping Springs Oyas. What's an Oya? Not going to tell you. You're going to have to wait to find out if you don't already know. Uh, but we'll have them on in just a bit. Before I ring them on, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. Sponsor the day number one today is BulkAmmo.com. You know, I call it the triangle of firearms performance. There's three components to it that have to be good or the whole thing sucks. One, the weapon. If you don't have a gun, you are not a firearms operation system. You just aren't. You're sitting there, you know how it works, but you don't have one. And a gun has to be a good, functional firearm. Two, you've got to have training. If the operator of the firearm is not functional, the whole system breaks down. But three, very important, you have ammunition. Without ammunition, you can be a great operator with a great firearm, and you have a really expensive club that your skills don't really transfer to unless you have martial arts go along with it. Maybe you could hawk it. You see, the whole point of having a firearm is so things will come out the, the uh, business end of it and make things turn into delicious meals or make bad things die. That's, that's the purpose of a firearm. And you got to have the ammo so you can train and be an effective operator, and you got to have the ammo in case there's something like... Oh, I don't know, an ammunition shortage. Have we ever had one of those before? So check out BulkAmmo.com today and stock up on the calibers that you use most, that you train with most. Great pricing, great service, and lightning-fast shipping. Next up today, Safe Castle Royal. That would be the original Survival Podcast sponsor. When I say that, sometimes people go, what, what the heck is the original Survival Podcast sponsor? What the, what the heck is that all about? What I mean by the original sponsor is that Safecastle was the very first group of people that stepped up and said, you know what, Jack? We want to sponsor the show. We want to, to become the, the first show sponsor. We know you're just getting started and all. I actually even had to say, you know what? Let's, let's hold off a bit until I get some more things set up. But we built the entire sponsorship program around bringing Safecastle in. They've been with us now over four years. They have no plans to go anywhere else. They give away their discount, uh, discount membership, which is a $50 or $49 product actually for free to all MSB members. And they have everything you could think of for your prepping needs. So check them out today at safecastle.com. Next up, want to remind you guys about the Walking to Freedom Forum. Please make sure you're still being engaged over there and helping others find a way to move. I know I promised to have some PR out on this thing by now, but it's been busy and uh, we will get that done this week, not this week, this, this month, and uh, we'll get a formal press release out and start really building up that site. 
I could use some moderators. I think I have one or two there. I specifically need moderators for the state-level boards, and I need a couple people that will basically be the shepherds that will oversee the whole thing to keep an eye on everything. We don't have a lot of spam there, but the more popular it gets, the more spam we're going to have. And uh, if people ever start being lippy and mouthy and assholes to each other, whoever's the major asshole needs to be banned. That's how the forums work. Uh, the forums are designed for discussion and debate, but not for people to insult each other. And that's true on the TSP forums, and it's going to be true on Walking to Freedom. So if you have experience with moderation on forums, specifically uh, uh, SMF forums, and it doesn't really have to be because they all pretty much work the same, let me know. Or if you just are willing to figure it out, especially a state-level moderator doesn't really need to be that skilled. You just have certain extra functions like deleting posts. Uh, that type of thing. Uh, let me know and I will, uh, I'll set you up. What you'll need to do is email me. You'll need me to tell, you'll need to tell me your username on the Walking to Freedom forum, uh, and, and then I'll set you up as a moderator. And if you see a moderator listed in a state board, but there's only one, we can have two or three moderators per state board. This thing's gonna get pretty active, especially some of the states that, that garner a little bit more discussion. And yeah, I don't mind if you want to be a, a moderator of, like, Illinois or, or New Jersey or any of the states on the naughty list. We, we really do need some people there too. Anyway, uh, with that wrapped up, let's go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show. And on that note, it's uh, it's my good fortune to say, hey, Lori and Jeff, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Well, hi, Jack. Thanks for having us on. I, I really appreciate it. I, I'm a new follower, but I have been listening to your podcasts. They're a little addicting. Uh, and mainly so far, I've listened to your Women of Prepping series and started watching some of your permaculture series on YouTube. So it's a lot to learn, a lot to learn. Jack, uh, great to be here also. Thanks a lot for having us. Hey, I'm glad to have both of you guys on. Um, this is near and dear to my heart because we're talking about a couple uh, building a business, uh, which is a big thing with self-sufficiency. They're do you're doing it in Texas, which is even better, and you're doing it in kind of the sustainable agriculture slash permaculture realm. So that's really awesome. Now, this is something I've heard about, but I've never gotten deeply into. You guys have set up a company that builds... Oyas, is that how you say it? Because my Spanish is good in pronunciation, but not in reading. Right, Oya, it's a Spanish word, and it's commonly referred to as Oya irrigation. So that's why I use the name in my company. But but also, it's known as clay pot irrigation and pitcher irrigation. Okay, so my understanding is that this has been around a while, and it's been used right in our southwest U.S. area, New Mexico and in Arizona. Is there like evidence of that? Uh, well, actually, yes. They're, they have found um, old remains of Oyas on uh, uh, on some ranches in New Mexico. Um, the Ghost uh, Ghost Ranch, I think, is uh, a place where they found it. Anyway, there's a lot of uh, evidence, and it's been documented over 2,000 years ago in some Chinese history. It's used around the world still today, but ancient, ancient method of irrigation that we're just trying to bring back because it's a smart thing. Can you explain just a little bit about, because we, we haven't actually done yet, other than to save the macro view, the huge thing, it's a, it's a clay pot, you know, what an oil it really is and how it, how it functions. Right. Well, very simply, it's, it's an unglazed clay pot, and our dripping springs oil is about two gallons. So you bury that in the ground up to the neck. Just leave a few inches out. You fill that with water. Uh, we have a lid that goes on top to keep out critters and bugs and things. But essentially, you fill it with water. You plant around it. 
uh, the water seeps out uh, through the side of the pot to the root zone of the plant. The plants will eventually, the roots will grow toward it and pull the water out as they need it. It's a self-regulating system because, you know, the roots will provide some, some suction. And so, you know, if you're getting a lot of rain, your pots won't be emptying. If it's as dry as it is now, you're going to be filling a little more often because they're going to pull it out. But uh, the studies done just show that it's extremely efficient, I, and it's just a good thing, very smart. So, I mean, you said yours is about two gallons, mm-hmm. and I know that the, the answer in anything to do with, you know, living beings and, and technologies that are low-tech is it depends. Um, but trying to kind of put up an average in a, a general, like let's say a springtime where it's not really, really dry, how, how often do you have to fill it uh, per unit and in a time where it's dry, roughly how often? And, then, again, no one's going to be like, you said seven days and it was six. I mean, just a guess. Well, in the springtime or in the fall, watering here in Texas, where we occasionally get rains, and it's it's here in Texas. Um, and the soil that I'm in, I, I have to have raised beds because we don't really have any soil. So it's you know it's a decent garden soil. Uh, so I'm filling about every maybe once or twice a week. I mean, if I've got lettuces and those sorts of things around it. Now, this time of year in the hot summer where we haven't had rain for a month and uh, and I'm growing tomatoes and, and things that sometimes need a little more water, I'm filling at least twice a week, three times a week. And okay. even and, – and here I'm also – when I go out and fill them, I do a little bit of supplemental water also in the garden, you know, while I'm waiting for my – I fill up my oil. I'll be checking the plants for bugs and that sort of just maintenance you do in the garden, and I'll just kind of be watering a bit during that time. But as far as watering daily or watering in between when I fill up the the pots, I don't do any of that. And I only do that when it's just the most dry like it is now. Well, I mean, you're you're demonstrating an effectiveness right there because if you try to skip a day of irrigation during a hot Texas summer on annuals, they're dead. Right. I mean, they're, they're, by the end of the first day of not giving them any water, if it's in a standard water bed, they're looking like they're going to die. And if you go two days, they are done. Or at least they've been damaged really, really bad by that experience. There's other things you can do, but if, if just adding that allows for that level of uh, reduced maintenance, it's pretty huge. With your layout, let's say, like, are you doing one per plant or one per group of plants? I mean, like if you had a ten foot by ten foot bed, a, a, you know, a fairly let's do some, that's probably not what most people do. Uh, let's say a four by eight bed because that's a more typical garden bed for people. How many would be in there ideally? Right. Well, okay. Well, right now in the summertime, I'm going to have peppers and tomatoes and squash and those sorts of things here in Texas. So in an, in a four by eight bed, I'm yep. probably I'm going to have two because okay. I, I can't plant more, I mean, I can't fit more plants. I'm going to plant all the way around the oil, and I'm going to put probably around four tomatoes or peppers or squash around each oil. Which is going to take up most of your bed right there. Okay. Right. So one in the center of four plants is good. Now, that's different, though, for instance, if you're planting lettuces and you're going to need to keep them a little closer, and you can fit more in there. And in that case with a 4 by 8, uh, four by eight bed, I mean, you may have four in there. Okay. But you're not going to have, you know, one every two inches down the center to, to, to pull this off. There's going to be a, a lot of 
planning space left. And it's, it, it, I, I just wanted to kind of get people's head around the quantity required for cultivation. Because a lot of people are gardening here with, you know, maybe they have five or six or ten uh, beds of, a, you know, an average size for the listener probably is four by eight. That's probably the most universal. Uh-huh. So that, that gives them kind of a concept of how much infrastructure they'd have to install to to make this work. Yeah. But I've looked on your, your site, and you guys, or at least people that are your customers, are not just using these in annual beds. I've, I've seen some of it being used, like, for perennial establishment with uh-huh. trees as well. Yeah. Uh, I ha- actually have there's a there's a ministry called Mobile Loaves and Fishes and they've they've installed a large garden vegetable garden where they've used all oil irrigation and they've been, they're putting orchards in of fruit trees and it's in a space that's kind of rural and they don't have you know they can't get water easily out to all the trees so they have an oil with each tree to get it established and it's and it's perfect uh, application because. Yeah, you only have to go out there once a week, fill that up, and and you're good at getting your plant started. That also kind of begats the ability to reuse because once that tree's established with deep tap roots and all, that oil can now establish another tree and another tree and another tree, and it becomes a a reusable and um, actually a redistributable item. If a if a charity or something uses it to establish, let's say a backlot food forest, once they've got the establishment done. They could actually then take those oyas out and 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 recreate that somewhere else at a totally different location. You know, I had yeah. not thought of that, but that's perfect. You're right, and because especially with a woody root like a tree, if you do leave it there, it may eventually crack that pot. So it's great for establishing it. And if you want to leave it there, you could continue to water through there. But but you're right. You could it's probably best if you dig it up and reuse it again to get something else going. Yeah, because once you got to, I mean, some places you might want to leave it there for dagging or ever, but most trees, once you get that, you know, that root drives down four or five feet in the ground, it's pretty self-sufficient. That's why we, that's why we plant them in the first place. Well, right, and you know, especially if you're getting any native trees established, you don't really want them dependent upon, you know, that local source of water. You want them to be, to go through these dry seasons and not, you know, an established root system. It's kind of like, please live for the first year, and then yeah. you're on your own. Exactly. And, you know, they use it a lot in re- uh, reclaiming desert spaces. You mm. know, uh, you know, they're planting mesquite trees and things, but when you're reclaiming desert, that's what you're planting. And they need some source of water just to, you know, give them a foothold, get them going. Yeah, absolutely. So when when you guys – so Jeff was in the Marine Corps for 25 years – and I guess you guys must have had your eye on, did you guys return to Texas, or did you just decide on Texas is where you wanted to be? Well, we we were both, were both from Texas, so we always thought eventually we wanted to be back here, and then and, and we wanted to be in the Hill Country, so uh, so we bought some property and, and uh, continued to move around and, and eventually ended up out here, but my... Um, So, so in in the whole house building is an interesting story, which I'd like to tell you about and get into a bit because it's kind of led us where we are today with the whole oyas and and our rainwater and all that. So, uh, yeah, I mean that's where I was leading up to mm-hmm. because my 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 question, you know, kind of follow up there is like, did you like say when we go back to Texas, 
we're going to put together this business and we're going to we're going to have Oya's in our backyard uh, establishing our, our stuff. Or did you say, like, we want to go back to Texas and we want to do something with the rest of our lives and we want to grow some of our own food and be more sustainable. And then then you came to the Oya. I mean, was it, you know, the chicken before the egg or the egg before the chicken here? OK, well, I'm going to give you my long story. Go ahead, man. That's why you're here. So we're the typical military family. And I heard you um interviewing a gal the other day that does the fermenting. She's a military wife and is moving around a lot. So, uh, you know, difficult to get established with a garden and, and start living a self-sustaining lifestyle. But it, it also opens you up to, um, to be very, um, you know, you're very open to different innovative ideas that you see around the world. And you're having to move all the time. So you have to be ready for change. So those things are good. But we moved around, you know, for 25 years, and one of our first duty stations was the Philippines, and, and our last was Okinawa, so a lot of different cultures. And both of those cultures are easily uh, more prepared than we are uh, and have are less dependent on assistance than we have become. So you, you learn a lot from living in those environments, how they um, – you know, when we were in the Philippines, we, we went through a coup and a volcano. And actually, Jeff, you could speak more on that. Yeah, being, uh, being self-sufficient is something we, we looked at with these other cultures. Uh, with, with case in point, the Philippines, I mean, we got up one day and the Filipino government had been taken over by the, uh, the Filipino military, some of which I, I knew at the time. And, and, and a lot of the guys in the rural areas, didn't miss a beat. It was a dysfunctional government anyway, and they just kept planting and kept growing. And, and I kind of made note of that. Like, you know, you don't have to be completely on the grid tied to the greater system. And also after Mount Pinatubo, when six inches of volcanic ash buried the, the, a portion of uh, the main island was on the Philippines, uh, yes, the people needed some assistance, but there was not sitting there waiting on FEMA to show up. There was a lot of dig yourself out and and uh, self-reliance and work together and and solve the problem. So that we were able to see more of a self-sufficient attitude firsthand. But what we also saw, particularly in Okinawa, both countries, but particularly in Okinawa, was every piece of ground on the island of Okinawa, which is a couple hundred miles or so from mainland Japan, they're gardening. And if you look at the history, the Okinawan uh, society was decimated uh, pretty bad, and there's near starvation after World War II, and they've learned to be self-sufficient. So we started thinking more and more on our last tour about getting back home, getting to the hill country, and yeah, we're going to grow, we're going to grow our own, not our own food completely, but most. I'm looking at my kitchen right now, and every vegetable I have in this kitchen is from the garden, which is fantastic. Not only because it's healthier, but it's because it's ours, and we grew it ourselves. But uh, Lori can tell you more about how she came across oil irrigation. And we didn't come across the idea until we got here and we wanted to be uh, less dependent on uh, water, uh, reduce our water use because we're on rainwater. Yeah, I mean, you, you get out there in the hill country and it's got a lot of beauty to it. But, I mean, you guys would kill me if you know how much rain I got this week. I mean, it was <laughs> – yeah. we, we hadn't had rain in like 40 days. And I didn't plan on having any rain through the middle of summer because it happens all the time even here. Mm -hmm. And while I was in Montana, my wife emailed me and it's like, it rained all night. Then the next day, she's like, it's still raining. And then the next day, she's like, it's still raining. Wow. So we got like two and a half inches of rain spread out over three days. Right. Uh, so, yeah, we're like, everything turned green. But I feel your pain one week ago. 
right? Because everything was brown. Grasshoppers were everywhere. So it kind of, I guess, led you to the point, like, we got to do something about this. And just throwing in a bunch of drip irrigation and running it once a day is not really going to pull it off. Yeah, that was like 2009, our first summer here, coming back uh, as we were building the house, living on the property here west of Austin. It was grasshoppers everywhere. And, uh, you know, it was one of the plagues was grasshoppers and no rain. So Lori started, and I'll let her talk about her looking for ways to irrigate. And, and remember, we're on we're on rainwater, a hundred percent. So we are going to be very frugal with our water, just because it's the right thing to do. And in this case, we have to, unless I want to buy you know city water and have a truck come out here and fill me up, which is never desirable. Yeah, and we've done that and continued to to water our garden. You know, when you're having a truck truck come hauling water. I mean, you don't even want to run a drip system. And I, I, I was a little afraid to put something like that in because nothing is foolproof. And I thought, okay, I'm going to set my timer. And what if uh, for some reason it doesn't shut off and I come home and my tank's empty, you know? So, um, so having all that in mind when, uh, when I was looking, you know, researching for irrigation because, I, you know, we'd seen so many good ideas being used around the world that I thought, you know, drip irrigation is a good idea, but I want to see, I want to make sure it's the best thing for us. So I'm, I'm researching and researching, and I come across clay pot irrigation. And um, I thought, you know, this just sounds so smart. Why, why have I never heard of this before? Uh, and it wasn't easy to find. Um, there are several studies out there, but you've got to look for them. Uh, and, and, it, and it is being used around the world, but people aren't talking about it, and it's not used here. So I'm, I start a search for unglazed clay pots, and I did actually find one, uh, one company, one a, a small ministry actually in Albuquerque who was making oyas, but they are uh, a little bit smaller than I wanted. The design wasn't exactly what I wanted, and the um, the price to have them shipped. You know, if I was going to use several. Was that that was something to consider as well, but but I started thinking, you know, this is a smart idea. Why isn't someone doing this? And that whole process led me to looking at to you know talking to potters, and then starting to search for a larger company that could help make these. And I don't know if the whole way I was thinking, hey, I'm going to start a business. A lot of it was more just inquiry and thinking, you know, where could this go? Why isn't someone doing this? How could it be done? Because I, for 25 years, have been a stay-at-home mom and moving every year and a half and raising kids and, you know, doing the whole Marine Corps wife thing, and that has been my job, and that's been fine. I haven't really wanted. I I never thought, oh, I'm going to, uh, Jeff's going to retire and I'm going to become an entrepreneur, and so it's just sort of led into that and grown, and here we are today and I have retailers on the west coast all the way to the east coast even in Canada I've had people calling me from Hawaii and it's it's amazing the demand now that I'm finding that when people find out about it when people know about it it just uh, you know it, people think oh oh my gosh why haven't we thought about this before why haven't we been doing this it's just so, getting so, the word out and letting people know this so is So let me ask you, you you say you started this in 2009 and I have a little factoid that I'll drop after you answer this question. Um, so I imagine by last year you were using these in your own gardens. 
I started the process, right, we moved here in 2009, and yeah. I started my garden. My first garden was just hand-watering because it was a four-by-four four square. We were in the middle of building our house, and, and okay. we were living in a barn here. So that was my first introduction to gardening, really gardening at all, because, you know, I had grown up with my parents gardening, but I hadn't gardened because we had been moving so often. So I'm gardening my little four by four square, and I'm thinking this is great and it's it's working well. But I'm going to go bigger, and that's when I started looking into the irrigation. And since I couldn't find the pots, I'm using clay flower pots, and that that works okay. It's not the best design, and it's kind of tedious. But if you want to start out experimenting, just the unglazed clay terracotta flower pot. You can try that and see, you know, how that works for you. It's got to glue them together and, and plug one end, and then fill from the, you know, the opposite end. You know, so the the openings are, are glued together to make kind of a, almost a cone shape. But good luck filling up one of those. The hole's too small, and this is very, very frustrating. <laughs> but Lori, what I, I think, uh, what Jack is getting at, you started the company uh, kind of reluctantly. The reluctant entrepreneur uh, that she is was when did you launch? 2012. March 2012. March of 2012. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, what I'm getting at is, did, by let's say 2011, did you have a lot easier of a year with your gardens personally? Well, I've I've never gardened without them now, except for okay. my small little four by four. But I, yeah. my when I talk to other people here in the area, and, yeah. and they say, "Oh, well, we have you know we're having to water every day. If I miss a day, things are dead." And I'm thinking, "Wow, you know that's that's not the case with me. I mean, I don't have I don't have the lush plants that you're going to have in Virginia right now where they're in a deluge, but yeah. uh, but things are alive and going well. And, and typically, um, I'm keeping my, you know, my tomatoes that are all becoming ripe right now. Those will hold over all summer until the until they start to grow again for the fall. And I'm not replacing plants because they're not thriving. My tomatoes aren't thriving midsummer after their first harvest, but they're alive and ready to go, you know. I mean, the reason I'm asking is because I'm looking at, like, 2009 when you started, you guys got 31 inches of rain. 2010, you got 37 inches of rain mm-hmm. for the whole year. Mm-hmm. Um, in 2011, you got 19. Yeah, 2011 that, was a great garden year for me. And that was, that you guys had a reduction in rainfall by almost 50%, right around 40%. Mm-hmm. Last year, 32 inches. This year, you guys are low on rain. Um, so far, with what's been reported on this report, I'm looking at six three is nine ten and a half, twelve about twelve inches for the year so far. Yeah, so, I mean, we got two inches a couple of days ago, so it's we 14. really needed that. But yeah, we are definitely low. We keep thinking we're going to get out of the drought, and then it doesn't rain for a month and a half, and then when it does rain, it seems to evaporate before it gets to the ground. There's also something to be said for this type of irrigation with not planning on the typical and and being resilient through the non-typical because, like, I'll go back to 2007 just to give people an idea of the climate swings in your area season to season. Mm -hmm. 2007, 46 inches. 2008, 16. 2009, 31. 2010, 37. 2011, 19. 2012, 32. That's... That's almost like you, you every other year or so you're in a totally different climate, right? I mean, it's like you've just moved 400 miles west to the true desert for a year, and yeah. then you came yeah. back. Well, another and thing you have to do something to even that out. Yeah, yeah. right, exactly. And another thing I've noticed about about the climate here is that it is it is very 
arid and very dry and almost desert-like because we've lived in the desert. I'm familiar with that. And But it does rain, but when it rains, it's coming all at once. And if you're not collecting it, it's, it's running off. I mean, occasionally, I mean, if you have good soil, it will soak in, but we don't. So it's, it's gone into the creeks and the rivers and the lakes. So it, it's not necessarily water that you count on for irrigation. You're collecting it and then you're still having to irrigate. If I could can add about Go ahead. The, the Oya itself, yeah. two gallons yeah. down in the root zone and those roots are going to draw almost a suction like pulling that water until they've had enough. So in that sense, it's very self-regulating. Uh, it's not a two-inch rain and then two months with nothing. It keeps the Oya, you know, half to, to full, and it's and the, the plant's going to regulate its water intake as it needs it. So there's a self-regulating as primitive as this technology is, there's a self-regulating aspect to it that's very, very good for the plant. It's also a, a climatic moderator, and I know you guys are kind of like, this is your thing, you came into it, and the water's the issue, so it's where your focus is, but you you guys shared with me before we started, you don't have like a huge overall broad umbrella knowledge of permaculture right. yet. You're kind right. of, this is your, your entry point. So one thing you'll learn as you go forward in permaculture is stacking of functions mm-hmm. and everything should be planned to have multiple functions. So if I plant a plant, it should provide a yield. It should provide biomass. Maybe it fertilizes another plant. Maybe I place it strategically so it's shade. And a lot of times, like, you don't even have to select something that has stackable functions because everything does. You just have to be aware of them mm-hmm. so you can place it. And then a lot of times it just happens. So one thing I can see is a stacking function with, with, with an Oya is water in the ground is generally not going to freeze. Okay? Mm-hmm. So it, 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 it'll have to take a much harder frost to freeze water in an Oya than it would freeze ground-level irrigation. So now I've got this water that sits there with the sun hitting it all in my winter and fall when I have those moderate frosts at the beginning and end of the season. And that water is going to actually become a heat sink. And then at night when the frost does start to settle, and it's not going to stop a major frost from killing a frost-tender thing, but the thing that can, is borderline on handling a frost now has this warm water heat sink at its roots. Yeah. And it it, it, it would probably be the case if you guys even gave a plant enough water to keep it looking the same as one watered with an Oya, if you looked at the point where you actually lose it to frost, I bet you it extends a season. Hmm. That's a great idea. I think we're going to try that. You know, on the, other end of the, uh, on the other end of the spectrum, I have been thinking um, that it keeps the soil cooler in the summertime. Most certainly. Mm-hmm. Most certainly. So it's... It's then you see again now you're now right away you start to, as soon as you understand stacking you start dragging all the functions into it and the the reason that's important is as we design systems if we have something that performs a function and maybe in this one application we don't really need to think about that but we know that it's there later on we run up a, a, against a design problem and we go oh that also does X. So then we can put that into a place in a design where we normally wouldn't have thought about it for a completely different reason. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's interesting how, you know, you say it's like ancient, low-tech, you know, primitive. But the ancient, low-tech, primitive stuff is the stuff that has 50 functions stacked into it because it's not just somebody something somebody threw out in China and started stamping because they had a market they could market to. It was somebody needed it to work to live. 
Right. right. And that's really what you're saying is this technology was something people used so they could live, you know, not just have a garden. Now we're taking it to where we can transform our gardens with low-tech primitive technology that's actually very advanced. And, you know, speaking of, you know, we, the uses, we use it in the ground with the fruit trees and in the raised beds and in containers. Containers is a great thing, especially for, you know, your, your small-scale or urban gardeners because you can water the containers very easily, which normally dry out so quickly. But also, you know, if you're an urban gardener and you're living in a small space in the city, chances are, too, that you're working in the city and you have a very busy lifestyle, and this just makes – this just gets you one step closer, you know. You're not having to – to hook up irrigation if you're just on a small patio and you're not having to remember to be out there if you have to be gone a couple of days or you just you're busy and you forget your plants are still healthy and being watered. It seems easier to build than a lot of these uh, self-watering containers too where you're putting two things together and I mean those things do work but this is pretty much stick the pot in there fill it up with dirt plant your plants fill it with water. Right. And, and well, it, granted it has to be a large container because it's sure a it does. two gallon pot. Yeah. Yeah, sure it does. I mean, you've got a two-gallon oya in there. You can't obviously have a one-gallon pot, but <laughs> if you're going to garden with containers and get any appreciable yield, you're probably using larger containers mm-hmm. anyway. Yeah, half a whiskey barrel size, you know, a couple feet across or so. Uh, they work very well. See, and that, that climate moderation is on steroids in a container because it's far more subject to swings mm-hmm. in temperature. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because all your sides are exposed, obviously, and then, and they dry out so quick. uh Without an oil, and we've got some great ones right out front this summer that are that are thriving right now. Yeah, and it's it's not just the sides; it's the the full size of the mass. So, like my pool is actually cold from the three days of rain right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, the yeah. pond down the street is still the same temperature it was, you know, last week, because it's just more mass that it has to be swung. Yep. So, so just that that there, so it's a water moisture, but then again, a temperature. Because what will happen is a lot of times I've seen container gardens where they're moist. But they're hot, and the roots are very unhappy, so the plants are very unhappy because it's too hot. But if you have this this cool reservoir of water slowly wicking out, that wicking action is going to have a cooling effect. Mm-hmm. Um, so instead of drenching the pot and then having it dry out relatively fast, you get a quick cool down and a quick heat up. By doing what you guys are doing, you're getting a slow evaporation, which actually is very cooling in the heat, the same way an evaporative cooler works to cool sure. a house. Lori, don't they use oyas to cool water in, in Mexico? Oh yes. Well, actually, I've had several people <laughs> tell me from all from India and uh, from countries all over the world. They'll come up when I have it, you know, when I happen to be in a space somewhere and talking about it. That uh, oh yes, we always have these outside on the back porch, wherever, because it's um, of course they wouldn't bury them. They would just be they would fill them with water and it would keep their water cool because oh, it's evaporative cooling. Mm-hmm. So they just so like we sit out a jug of water in our water bottle when we're working, and if we don't remember to put it in the shade, we go back to drink it, and it's disgustingly hot. We could make tea with it. Right. They stick it out there in, a, in a, the coolest area they can find, probably most likely. But while their water sits there, it actually gets cooler. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And they're primitive. Yeah. <laughs> and they're doing it without electricity. And, you know, yeah. an interesting thing I found is also people keep make like a little refrigerator. Say you have an Oya in the, you know, you have an Oya, and then you have it inside of a larger pot, and then you line that pot with something like straw, and then you okay. put vegetables or whatever you want to keep cool around the Oya, but inside, you know, inside the pot, if you can 
visualize what I'm saying. Yep. And it's it makes a little cooler. Besides oh, cooling the water inside the pot, sense. you're cooling the vegetables and things that you have outside. So I've got the water stored. I got cool water stored, and I can replace it with warm water later, so that, that that I can replenish it. I can draw water out of one pot and keep like root vegetables and things fresh in the other. Right. Folks that are listening, that might be something you want to note down um, because that may actually be useful at some point in planning your self-sufficiency beyond just irrigation. That's that's like bonus gold material for you guys out there. And I wish I could remember the name. It, there's a there's a name of that type of setup, and I can't remember what it is, but you know you can find anything online pretty easily these days. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Pot and pot cooler is one thing I'm finding <laughs> for it, but I'm sure that's not the right one. Uh, my Google flu is only so fast. Um, another question, I know everybody's out there going, okay, well, how much do they cost and where the heck do I get them? Well, I, we're in several retailers, and there's a full list on online. Uh, most recently, um, we have retailers now in California, uh, but uh, Whole Foods and, um, gosh, we're in States, we're in Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, Texas, Louisiana, um, in uh, Minnesota, 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 California now, and Canada. Yeah, I got you up in there, Toronto. And price-wise, they're ranging anywhere from 25 to 45. Per unit, depending on who's selling them. Yeah. And mainly the 45 range is on the East Coast, just because shipping is more expensive and the, the costs are more. Well, if you're in Central Texas, folks, they're all over the place from Austin up to, to my neck of the woods, the Fort Worth, Dallas, Irving area. So, so you guys are starting to reach out that way. So you guys don't sell direct. You sell only through distribution. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay, so everybody out there that's a distributor in this business, that should have been a magic golden ring in your ear. Um, having, I, don't, you know, I know you got your background is you, you started this thing up, and, and Jeff's background is military. I have a fairly large background in distribution, and distributors or, or retailers, I should say, love to hear, I don't sell direct, because that doesn't dilute their channel. It leaves the market for them. So if anybody out there would like to carry this, I would say get in touch here with the Haynes and uh, see if you could do that. Um, kind of shifting gears a little bit, though, um, what, what has been the results you've seen from people that are using this product? Well, um, one of my biggest fans is is one of our retailers, and I don't. There's uh, two gals. It's a mother and daughter. They have a radio show, and they're, they're garden inspirations, and they call themselves the Farm Girls. And they also do the DFW um, Truck Farm, which is a farm in the back of a truck for education purposes. They drive it around to schools. And they use Oyas in the back of their truck, and they said it's it's been doing wonderfully since they have them now. And they give garden classes, um, and so they also are a retailer. They just don't have a, a space, you know, a, a retail space. But um, they uh, that is their pick of the week, uh, almost every other week is the the Oya, um, and they do a lot of gardening. Um, I have. Feedback from when we first started out, we we and and still, you know, I do a lot of donations to school gardens. We started giving samples to uh, community gardens just to get some feedback and just to get it. People have some uh, experience with it, and then start talking. And so we've gotten a lot of very good feedback. People are are very happy with it. And what typically happens is uh, they'll come, they'll 
they'll see it in the store, or they'll go to purchase one, they'll buy one, and it's working for them, so they'll come by, come back to buy more. Because a lot of people want to test it out for it first. It's a new thing. But but multiple pots is what people are using. One, one of the things I can see that's a real advantage to yours is, because I'm on your FAQ on your site, and it talks about using a liquid fertilizer. Right. Uh, it says you can you know, use a little bit less, and it's going right to the roots. So and obviously people here would most likely want to use an organic liquid fertilizer, mm-hmm. but... That's a great idea. Well, the first thing I thought is, well, I don't want to get it all like gnarlyed up with a bunch of organic matter down no. in there. But if I had like a bunch of comfrey, which if you don't have a bunch of comfrey, you should growing on your property somewhere because um, it's so hot, so so great of a dynamic accumulator. And then I would take a big bundle of comfrey leaves and tie a string around them and dunk them into my olla like a like a tea bag and leave them in there for like a week or two and then yank them out and toss them on the compost pile or just onto the bed that I would just put all kinds of dynamically accumulated nutrient straight into the irrigation and slowly dissipate it into the root zone. And, you know, Jeff mentioned the gluing the pots together, and I've seen that done, and I think it would be hard to get that little bundle of leaves in, let alone back out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but that's actually, a, I mean, again, I just keep thinking, how do you stack the functionality there? And the opportunity to do things like that, you can probably do that with any type of, of you know, dynamic accumulating weed. We have, uh, I'm sure you guys have prickly lettuce um, that you have to deal with as a weed, and but it's a great dynamic accumulator. I, uh, I am not familiar with that term, but I'm taking notes, Jack. Uh, it's it's tall. It's It's got sticky, burry things on it. If you try to yank it out without a pair of gloves on, it hurts. Um, and geese love to eat it, and so do cattle. Uh, but, but I'm, not, I'm not, not familiar with dynamic accumulator. Oh, dynamic accumulator is a plant that has uh, root structure and uh, biology to where it can ex- extract nutrient mm. from soil that generally other plants have a difficult time acquiring. Oh. So one of the main nutrients that, for instance, comfrey extracts is um, is potassium. Okay, which you know that's one of the main main uh, nutrients that plants need, um, and and phosphorus as well. Um, but what will happen is that deep taproot will get down there in the subsoil, and there might be plenty of a particular nutrient that's there, and it's, it, it, it can be accessed. But many of the other plants, even if the roots get down there, in the form that it's in where it's bound up, they can't get it. They don't have the chemical biological relationship necessary to extract that. It's it's there, but it's non-bioavailable is the term. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Where another plant has the ability to mine that. And when it pulls it up to the surface, it puts it into its body and its leaves, and eventually it goes ah. through its seasonal rotation and it dies back. Mm-hmm. And that nutrient now goes into the topsoil and becomes available to the surrounding plants. That's one of the reasons we don't plant one plant everywhere we do these mixing is because that's one of the symbiotic relationships. Mm-hmm. So comfrey, um, prickly lettuce, dandelion. Generally, if you pull something, any kind of a dock, if you pull something out of the ground and it's got a long taproot that drives down into the ground, it's generally a dynamic accumulator of something. Mm-hmm. So when we cut our le- weeds and, and, and instead of tossing them away, that's one great reason to use weeds in your compost. Mm-hmm. But, you, but another thing that we do a lot of is making weed tea. Mm-hmm. So we'll cut up a bunch of these types of weeds, put them in a bucket, and water with that. Well, you could dump that into your oil, or you could, like I said, you just make a big old bound-up tea, tea bag, basically, of weeds, mm-hmm. shove it down in your oil, and all of that is naturally now leaching into the soil. All right. I'm loving that. I'm going to be trying that very soon. I, I have used um, some compost tea bags 
um, in some of my pots, and uh, I just I love this. That's great because I I have a yard full of weeds. That's <laughs> perfect for me. And they're accumulating. See, here's what I think people don't get: weeds are a restorative component of nature. So. If I came to your property and I, I knew nothing about your property, you said nothing to me. And as long as I know the plants in your area, because like I was just in Montana, I'm like, I don't know what that is, I don't know what that is, I don't know what that, I don't know what the hell that is. But you know, in Texas, I'm pretty familiar with the vegetation, so I can look at the weeds, and I could just look at the weeds and knowing their root structure, say, okay, that soil's compacted, that soil's loose, because nature will send a, a, a weed with a, a hairnet style root to hold loose soil together, and nature will send a deep tap root to decompact. So it will also then send things that will say, well, this site is deficient in iron, but there's iron everywhere in some form. So it will also then just be naturally advantaged to the weed that can get iron when others can't. Well, that weed, by performing its function of extracting iron where others can't, will just have to, because it won't live forever, make the iron available to things that aren't quite as good at getting at it. So then they'll come next. And then maybe they're good at getting potassium or, or, or chromium or whatever it is, and they'll begin a dynamic accumulation process of that. And all of these things eventually, that's why if you leave a field alone and you don't do anything to it, assuming you haven't totally screwed it up, especially as you move east of the Mississippi River where this is easier to happen, come back in 20 years and it's a forest. But it all starts with the weeds. So if you have weeds, there's something imbalanced, and those weeds are telling you that. And they're, they're, they're beginning a healing process. It doesn't mean they're wonderful because, I, you know, in permaculture we teach there is no such thing as a weed, but there are things that will choke out your desirable plants and kill them. Mm-hmm. So you still have to put some modicum of control in there, but if you understand why they're doing what they're doing, then we can mimic that function. So if we have lots of dandelions and we don't like to eat them for some reason, we can say, well, comfrey kind of fills that role. Well, what what we have here uh, up on our hill is mainly, you know, primarily native grasses. We have a native, uh, you know, we've cut down most of our cedar, but we have left some. We have some oak. We have some just the native um, smaller trees. And uh, and when we've planted for you know for the yard, we've planted all native plants because I don't I don't want to be putting extra water into into just my ornamental plants. Sure. So, uh, so yeah, trying to really work with what's here. I mean, and and that was a mindset that we got into. Gosh, I, ha- I guess we haven't always been there, but you you start you live in different environments, and you just see people working with what they've got, and you think, why aren't why isn't everybody doing this? Why do we have these big green lawns that we try and keep going and then have to mow and uh, and it's just, especially with the way, well, I, and I know here in Austin, especially with our water um, situation here in Austin, which is not the same, you know, around the country, but I, I don't think we're too far away. People just have to be more mindful, and I think they are. I think most people are starting to change their way of thinking, realizing that, you know, it's not healthy for us or the land to keep to keep doing what we've been doing. And so I, I wouldn't necessarily consider myself a prepper, although I think I have a lot of that mindset just that has developed over the last several years. And I, I'm seeing it in the, 
in the general population. People are starting to pull their heads out of the sand a bit and start thinking differently. I think so, and I think that one of the things that we're we're seeing here is a natural progression of society back to like common sense, yeah. and that's the, why the word like prepper even work even exists because you know in the seventies and eighties when I was growing up in the in the coal region of Pennsylvania, if you would have said you were a prepper, people would have looked at you like what what are you talking about? Um, and then if you would have described what you were doing, they would have said so you're a person that lives here. <laughs> right. I mean, it would have been like, what are you, what are you, what are you talking about? You know, I mean, you all we garden, we we fix our own stuff, we stay out of debt. You know, all the stuff that we talk about in the prepper lifestyle mm-hmm. today, um, it was just what people did, and they weren't doing it because they were afraid of what the future was going to bring. They did it because it made sense. Mm-hmm. So I think it took losing it for people to go, well, what are the consequences now of an uncertain future with all of this skill and knowledge having, you know, largely went away with the death of the last generation? And some of those people are still here, but generally most of them are not out still digging gardens and and canning and stuff like that. Some of them are, and I'm going to get emails from people going, I'm still here. I know, know, but I'm talking about people like my grandmother's and my grandfather's age. Which, I mean, we're going back to people that I couldn't tell you how old they'd be if they were alive today, but I know both of them came here as young children in the 1890s. So we're, most of that generation is gone. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you're talking about the longest-lived human beings on planet Earth. And we lost so much when those people left us because the next generation only had so much interest and the next generation only had so much interest. And we're sitting at a place now where people are going, holy crap, and it's leading us back to these primitive technologies because mm-hmm. they yeah. work. And, and Jack, what we're also seeing, uh, and uh, maybe more in Austin or other, other areas, I'm not sure, but the younger generation is, is becoming more and more interested in organic gardening. They're interested in oils and, and, and that's different. It's, it's, ex- it's extreme how active our youth are becoming in this, this movement. Whenever I go to any kind of a class or training or something, there's always, very optimistic and unfortunately very frightened young people. Um, I think that it's a double-edged sword. Some of them are so sure that we're going to run out of every drop of oil next week <laughs> and that, that the planet is going to rise in temperature you know, 10 degrees in the next five days and the whole world is going to end. That's what lights the fire under their butt. You know, My only hope is that those folks that are doing that kind of get grounded as they come into this and realize, hey, look, this is not about the problem. This is all about solutions. And, you know, I don't care why you do any of this stuff. I just care that you do it. Yeah. And there, I think there's a tremendous variation of motivator out there to get people. Some just want healthier food. Some want to save the polar bears. Some yeah. want to turn their backyard into a paradise. Some want to change their community. And I don't care what your motivator is. Just do something. Or the one guy that we saw on YouTube, he was like, you want to? He was uh, some dude uh, like in South Central or something like that in L.A. He's like, you want to help out? Don't write a check. Get down here and plant some shit. Right? <laughs> and this guy had planted like I don't know, like close to a hundred community gardens. Uh, yeah, wow. yeah, I've seen that. It's great. You see him? He was hilarious. It's and great. He was so well, smart think, uh, though, you know. He's I like, think, you send a check to them people over there. They won't do nothing with it. But you get down here and plant something, you will feed somebody, you know? Yeah, well, the, the, uh, one of the nice things about all this uh, growing your own or is this generation is learning what a real tomato tastes like again instead of this plastic stuff they've been trying to feed us in the grocery stores. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, and I don't think everybody needs to get to the point where they can grow everything they eat. I don't, I, I, I don't know that everybody could. 
but if if you're shopping locally and your local farmers are growing that and you you know we get butchers again and local small dairies i think if we we localize things so that maybe i'm not doing it but there are but we can't get it in our area there are people who are doing it i, I you know if we just move back to that and and, and I see. I think it's happening. I think people are seeing the need. I think it's happening. And maybe I'm a little bit skewed because here in Austin, I think it's happening quicker than a lot of places. It is happening much faster than Dallas. Let me tell you that. Yeah. Every every time I get an episode of Acres Magazine with something featured in urban or suburban farming in Austin, I'm like, will you people around me please do something? Because <laughs> I don't want to do this commercially. I do this kind of for myself and for the neighborhood, you know. Um mm-hmm. I, I, but there's a tremendous opportunity, I think, for small farms to re- resurge all over the country. Yes, huge. Mm-hmm. And I think if you can give them an advantage, like like the type of technology you guys are marketing, that starts to mediate cost, and it also lets them say something like, "See, and I think this is something that producers need to start doing. If you're doing something that the mainstream food supplier isn't doing, please make sure your customers know this." Yes. So if you, instead of saying, you know, like Paul Wheaton's thing is, we shouldn't irrigate anything. Okay, well, you live in Montana. Okay? <laughs> and, and I don't care if you get less rainfall. You also get a whole lot less evaporation. Mm-hmm. So you just go off and do your no irrigation thing, Paul. But to be able to say irrigated 100% with rainwater, right, that is a, that is a hook. And I think one of the things holding back a lot of our, our small farmers is understanding how to market what they have. Because that is that's a very strong message. That, that's a, not only am I being environmentally responsible, I'm not taking the water that's full of you know fluoride and chlorine and putting it onto your food. I you know I am irrigating, but I'm irrigating with rainwater. Now there's contaminants in rainwater, but it's far better than water from the grid, and we all know that. So I think it's important that like farmers start to you know. Note these things, like, hey, we're 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 doing 100 percent of our irrigation with rainwater. Hey, Jack, let me make a. I'm sorry, can ahead. I make a quick point to back up uh, to your point. Yeah. Uh, a couple summers ago, when we had a really bad drought here, we had to buy had the water truck come out with city water, you know, drinking water, and put it in our tank. Okay, so that's purified water, ready to go, ready to drink. Once it went through my filters, my filters lasted half as long as they normally do. When it's pure, when I say pure, when it's rainwater coming off my roof with the dirt and bird mess and everything else. So what does that tell you? I mean, the, the filters last half as long when they're cleaning clean city water than when they're cleaning dirty rainwater, so to speak. It's, it, it says everything is what it says. I mean, <laughs> if that... For, and you see, this is what I get with people when I start talking about doing rain catch for, for potable water and things like that. They're so freaked out about, you know, first flush and what's up on the roof. And we can filter anything, guys, but what you just said, um, beyond the agricultural implications, should just ask, you know, make people start asking, well, what's going in my body when I drink water from the tap? I mean, that's why I've always been, even if you're, and I'm on, I'm on well water. Um, but I've been on grid water before and we put everything through a, a Berkey filter that we're going to drink or cook with. And we do that, and I, I mean, I even have a water purification softener system for water in the house because I have such hard water now. If I don't, it'll basically ruin all my fixtures. Sure, and that's um, the benefit of rainwater is you're not softening it. You're just getting some particulates out and shooting it with a UV light. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, that's something we're actually trying to move to is more rain catch here. 
Um, but we have what we have for now, so we use it. But my point is that's just a, a statement right there for for uh, for filtration, period. I mean, yeah. I don't care where you're getting your yeah. water from. You should yeah. be filtering it if it's going in your body. And one thing about using, uh, I don't think we covered this, about using rainwater and oil is a lot of folks just use rain barrels, you know, around the side of the house or whatever. The problem with a rain barrel, unless you have a pump, and, or if you if you have that barrel, don't have that barrel really, really high, and you're just going off of gravity, it's yep. really slow. So if you're filling oyas, and the Dripping Springs oil has about a four-inch neck, so you can just take a bucket of water, you know, you can... A submerge a bucket in your rain barrel, just take the lid off the rain barrel, put your bucket in there, walk over to your oil and just pour it in very quickly. And that that's the way to use rainwater uh with an oil that's that's practical where you don't have to have a pump and, and try to run a hose. I mean a hose is great, but a lot of people again don't have a pump with their uh, rain barrel. Well, I, I was going to actually lead me to a question that kind of goes in a different direction. You guys say you're 100% on rainwater. So obviously you're not, you know, doing that with a few rain barrels. So what's your water catchment system like? 20,000 gallons, uh, the roof, our house is guttered, metal roof, and uh, guttered, of course, and uh, the gutters come together underground, we run 4-inch PVC under the road here, and I'm going to describe it all to you, but it's 4-inch PVC, and it goes through the tank, and then it goes, makes a 90 degree and goes straight up and dumps in top of the tank, and it's 20,000 gallons, and there's a pump there at the, uh, at the tank. And it's above ground. Do you have a single tank with that capacity? Single tank with that capacity. In fact, it's a metal tank, and it's got a uh, bladder inside of it. I believe it's an Australian design because that's another place where I travel to where they do things far more efficient than we do and in home design and everything else. So they're ahead of us on on water collection, but it's an Australian design tank. I don't recall the brand. Pioneer. Pioneer, and then it's that uh, water is pumped uh, through a couple filters and then hit with the UV light and into the house or to the, you know, the hose bibs, the hose connections around the house, exterior of the house. But those aren't filtered. Yeah, those aren't. We just run straight rainwater to, you know, water our plants. We don't filter sure. those. It's the inside house. Uh, and I tell you, uh, you can really taste the difference. You can feel the difference in your I don't have much hair anymore, but the, <laughs> those that have hair say the water here is fantastic uh, for for hair and skin. And, Twenty-five uh, years at the core, you weren't exactly ever sporting much hair anyway. You wasn't sporting much hair, but what I had was looking really good, and now it's got a, a, a higher sheen than it ever had in the past. But uh, cool. so it is great, and it's not hard on your fixtures. You know, you just mentioned fixtures in in, in well water. We don't have the, the fixture problems uh, that a lot of folks have. With regular water. What 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 prompted you guys? Because you built this place, right? You guys didn't go buy a place, and it just happened to be kind of off grid water wise. You guys no. chose that. What what drove, drove that decision? Uh, Northern Hayes County. Uh, you know, again, thirty five miles directly west of Austin. We're northwest of Dripping Springs in the hill country. It's pretty hard water here. Uh, you got to drill several hundred feet deep. A lot of people moving out here, more people poking holes into that aquifer. So two things, I guess, led to the decision. One, first, there's no city water out here, so that option was out. Okay. Uh, so it was between the well and the rainwater, and, and uh, looking at that some of the wells were unreliable, possibly going dry or having to be drilled deeper was one concern. Number two is the hardness and the taste of the water and all this purifying and putting all this stuff into it and softening 
and rainwater was readily rainwater services were readily available out here in the hill country. It's pretty popular in Dripping Springs. So we just weighed our options and said, you know what? Worst case scenario, if we have the drought of the century, which we did our second year, <laughs> yep. you call the truck and they bring out two thousand gallons and you write them a hundred dollar check and you're done with it for a month. And if it if it rains after that, great. And if not, I guess you got to do it again. <laughs> yeah, and, and we had to do it one summer. And right now, I'm, I'm looking at my tank, and it's the middle of July, and I have uh, nineteen thousand gallons, which is about six months worth of supply. I'm not which worried about running out of rain water. No, and you only have what another thousand gallons of capacity anyway, so you're you're good to go. I mean, and, and unless something goes really wonky this year. You're you're good now because you will get rain in the fall and winter. I mean yeah. that's something we, we yeah. do know happens in this this area. Yep. Um, so when you do have those lows, it's very seasonal and it's also very annualized into like cycles. So like most years, it shouldn't be an issue. Right. The year you get 19 inches versus 30 inches, it could become an issue. Yeah, and even if you know what, if we got 12 inches, and this is based on our water. Uh, our water consumption, which is kind of marine corn in nature, which we ain't wasting up here on the hill. So we have, you know, we're pretty good at, at, at this. So I can, if I had an inch of rain a month, we can, we would be fine. Because okay. an inch of rain is 3,000 gallons. And that's okay. based on my roof size. Everyone's going to be sure. different. And it's, of and course, it's, lasting a month is based on uh, two adults and an 18-year-old that periodically drops in and do his laundry. Um, <laughs> now, now, as far as like the grid goes, you guys are on grid for electric, then. Yes, that's yep. that's next in the list. Um, it, it's harder in this climate because it's like a billion degrees all summer. But I tell you, right? I tell you what we did though, Jack. When we were designing our house, ha- you know, yeah. looking at designs around the world that worked. Um, we we did very deep porches. We did the house. Uh, most of the house is just one room deep, so and we've positioned it where we get um, the prevailing breeze, and we also have positioned it where we're not getting a lot of the intense summer sun into the deep porches. Although in the winter it does come in there and warms things up. So even in in the winter we're protected from the north wind and we have that kind of a heat sink on our patio. So we can get outside on the patio when it's in the colder weather longer than most people. And we, you know, for a lot of the year, we just have our windows open and aren't running the AC. And That's great. Yeah, you, you, we have the casement type of windows that, that crank out, so you, you have them open in the correct direction. And ours is southeast prevailing breeze like a lot of Texas, so... It hits that window at the, at the angle and then comes into the house. It works very well, so we can. That's great. Yeah, we don't have that. What we do have that I would say is is like a second best option is all of our windows in this house. And this is some people should look at when you're buying an existing house and know you can only do so much to change it. Um, one of the real perks is when you have windows that can open either from the bottom or the top. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that yep. you can open the top on one side of the house and the bottom on the other and get that natural cross flow. Mm-hmm. This, since this house was built in the 70s. Um, and that was one of the few things that had ever been upgraded in the home was the windows. That was like a huge, yep. huge thing for us. And fortunately, in the winter, this house is built to be really energy efficient, even though it's an old design. We almost didn't use any heat. I can unfortunately not say the same thing about staying cool. Yeah. Um, we have some real challenges with, you know, 1978 technology and trying to keep the house cool. 
far as keeping it cool, the, the smartest thing we did is really figured out house positioning and, and you know, the angle. Because ours is kind of a long house with a lot of windows. Uh, and, and I got out here with my uh, my compass and my computer and looked at where the sun would be setting certain times of, years, uh, of the year. And that's how we angled and positioned the house. And it's really, really made a huge difference. A great uh, smartphone app that people can get that really makes that easy to do is called Sunseeker, and that's that's something a lot of folks out there may want to write down. Sunseeker, I think there's a free version and like a dollar ninety nine version. I have the free version because it shows me where the sun is, and that's pretty much why I have it. And uh, that's you know with with planting houses and, and gardens as well. It's a yeah, huge, gardens, certainly. You know, huge, even if you're buying an existing house, that might play into um, into that. I mean, because you absolutely. don't always get a choice of how you're placing it. But you know, if if you can, because we've lived in houses that have been miserable because. You know, you go and open the door and you you burn your fingers because it gets such direct heat. So, you know, position of a house just makes a huge difference. And when you're choosing, keep that in mind. That's absolutely great advice. Um, and, like, here's another thing that I started thinking, because you guys like this, because you are into the whole, you know, sustainable housing plus the garden design thing. I was just in Montana with Paul Wheaton who is an awesome guy. He's an obnoxious ass, but it's okay because it's the first thing he says when you meet him is, hi, I'm Paul, I'm an obnoxious ass, <laughs> right? So that makes it a lot easier to deal with and get through to his brilliance. So he was talking about building uh, basically solar catch into garden design. Uh-huh. And he was saying, everybody does this for December 21st. I want to <laughs> do it for like the first week of February. And because that's going to give it a longer effective range, and then my thought was, well, you know what? It's usually colder in February than December. So it actually makes sense to optimize angles, maybe not for the solstice so much as, you know, that little bit later in the year when it's actually colder. Mm-hmm. And then my other thought was, and I had this thought on the plane, I'm like, I hate it when he's right um, about something this cool, is that that actually optimizes in a season extender because now we're pulling it back to where it's optimized on the other side oh, of the yeah. solstice for like being like mid-November which is right when the first frosts are coming into this area. I'm like, damn it, you know? <laughs> yeah. Paul. Uh, but that was actually really cool. And that's like, so that's like, what's cool about that is it's something for people to think about when you're between like two houses mm-hmm. and you're like, they both work. But if one's got that optimized solar oh, yeah. um, component, then yeah. that's going to make like, because I can't just build a new house. It's not in the budget and it really would be a waste of a nice house. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the fact that it was oriented south, with a steep gable roof pointing south was like, yeah, this is this is kind of cool. We we did notice that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think if I had two houses that were the same, except one was pointing north that way, I think I would have picked this one. Yeah. Yeah. And, and if you're you, and it's always one of those things that you do and you think, oh, gosh, why didn't I think why didn't I think of that? You know, when it's too late. Um, and we've been in that, you know, we've, mo- most of the houses that we've lived over the years have not been our choice. You know, it's military housing or, you know, where we can, you know, where you get we what you get, you're lucky to get it. But, yeah. beca- but because we've lived in so many houses, you know, you, you see like this is not working, this works great, you know, you're able to, to, to pick what works. And what was funny, when we moved here and we, we started building and our builder was, not, that's not done here. Well, what, what do you, we don't do that. And, and I thought, okay, well, just because everyone doesn't do it doesn't mean it yeah. can't be done. And this is what yeah. I want. And they weren't odd things. Um, but it's, you know, they just want to do, this is what everyone's doing. Everyone wants this and everyone wants this. And well, 
I don't want it. And I don't care if it's going to resell, you know. And and, yeah. and like I said, they're not odd things. They're not anything that would throw anyone off. But, yeah. uh, you know, it, it's just you, you if you're not thinking about all those things, you should be. Absolutely. I don't know why, but it's making me think of the TV show House Hunters where they do the international version. And people are like, I want to leave Minnesota, and I want to go live in Europe and see what it's like. And they're yeah. on and on and on, basically. And basically the sub the sublingual message, you know, is or subconscious message is, you know, America sucks, and I want to experience other cultures. And they get over there and they look at the house, and they're like, well, that's not the way it is at home. That's, that's not right. the way it is. Well, then go back to Minnesota, you know. <laughs> exactly. This kitchen just is too small, I'm thinking. This is what you've got. This is what everyone else is doing. You know, you just yeah. you got to do it. You got to do it. I, I mean, we in, in Japan they don't have ovens. You go to the local bakery if you want bread. Mm. And I don't think they do in a lot of Europe. I don't think in a lot of uh, like Paris. I think if you're living in town, I think a lot of people don't have ovens. But you know, why would you when you can go down to the corner and get wonderful baked goods? Who wants to, you know? And when they do, they have, like, this little bitty-ass yeah. oven. It's, yeah. like, stuck into, like, you, you can't even believe they put an oven in that yeah. spot. And it's, it is different. I think we, we do lose how how much space there is in this country. Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, people don't get how much space we have, and we should we should be good stewards of that space, and we should all be doing what we can to, you know, because we have the people that write me all the time and go, I only have a tenth of an acre lot. And I'm like... There are people that would punch four babies in the face in Europe to have a tenth of an acre lot, you know. Not that I'm advocating that. I'm just saying, like, yes. I try to use a little humor there and really drive home how yeah. big a deal it is. The, the average person in this country that does own a home has at least that. Yes, but, you know, also in a lot of these countries, they, they do have a lot of shared spaces. You know, they'll have community gardens or spaces where people get out of their house. And we're, we do that less and, and we probably should more. And, you know, to communities that are starting to be designed around sort of an urban model where they do have shared spaces, I, I mean, I think that's a smart thing and better use of resources. Not everyone can be out, you know, on their own. And so when you're not, if you can be in a place that's just well-planned, you know, it's a good well, choice. We- well, Dave Jackie showed us when we were in Montana for this forest garden thing we were building, because part of it was it wasn't just a forest garden. It had community gardens as well in it mm-hmm. where, you know, you, you le- basically the, the organization leases the gardens and then the person gets it with a lease and, like, they can lease it for a year. Mm-hmm. And he was saying, you know, we, we one of the things we need to be doing is changing the consciousness to the community garden being something you farm versus mine. And he was talking – he showed us this picture of this community garden. I think it was in Switzerland. Mm-hmm. And the people there have 100-year leases wow. that are inheritable in a wow. community garden. And he showed it, and it like the one had this, like, the, the guy that had it called it a shack, but it was like a little cabin that it looked like it had been there for 150 years. And it, you could tell that, like, this was a place that people would go for a per- certain time of the year and live there. Mm-hmm. So they were living at their community garden for, you know, the high season. And they had all the little, like a little miniaturized comforts of home. It was like their bug out location. Yeah, yeah. But it was like, I guess they get, you know, 60 days of holiday or whatever. And it was like, you take a holiday for a month at your garden spot. We don't get that, right? (laughs) Yeah, but that was pretty freaking amazing to me that people would value that little plot of land so much. And I think the reason they valued it so much is because they had such a long term. It wasn't just, well, I might not have this next year. They had more permanence in that community garden 
than most people would ever have in their home. I mean, a lot of people in America today, if you said, are you absolutely sure you'll live in this house in 10 years, even if they own it outright, would say no. So that probably happens in Europe more. There's more moving to, you know, with little apartments and stuff like that. But maybe even if they move a lot, the actual permanence is that little piece of long-term yeah. lease land. And that's yeah. that's kind of cool. Yeah. I, I, to be fair to you guys, so I think we kind of got segued off, off topic a bit. And I want to bring it back as we wrap up today. So you said there's places where people can go buy them, they can find it and all, but I don't think we actually told people what your website was so they can actually go there to it. Well, my website is Dripping Springs Oyas, and that's O-L-L-A-S dot com. And, uh, yeah, there's a full list of retailers there. Um, and speaking of community gardens, if you do have a plot in a community garden, it's a perfect place for an Oya because, you know, you're not there every day watering. It's a great uh great solution for your watering needs in a community garden. But, yeah, look online and hopefully um, you'll find us at more retailers soon. We're planning on attending a big, um, the IGC show in August, which is Independent Garden Center. So it's all the garden centers that aren't the big box stores. We're planning on attending that show in August and and, and we'll see. We'll we'll expand. And, Jack, for your listeners, if if they have a a favorite uh, nursery or garden center, they can certainly encourage the uh, the retailer to contact us. You know, that would be a great thing. I, I believe this audience really comes together as a community when there's an opportunity to help, especially when it's a, a low-impact, low-effort low, low request. If you'd like to buy one of these folks, I think you can find some people selling them on Amazon. And that would be great, and I'm sure, you know, Lori and Jeff would be very happy that you purchased through anybody. But if you're in a state that doesn't even have these things yet, and you went and said, you know what, if you carry this, I'll buy it, That that is a great way for this community to reach out and help other members of this community. you got a returning veteran here, folks that came back and could just basically, you know, live as best you can on a military retirement, which ain't everything it's cracked up to be just for some people out there that seem to think it is, but could get by. And instead decided to do something meaningful that furthers the the mission of this community. And I think that would probably be, wouldn't you guys say that would be one of the best ways people could help you is to not just purchase the product, but help expand the distribution channel? Oh, sure. That'd be great. And, you know, and, and who wants to pay the shipping on that? If your local nursery will carry it, that's, you know, that's going to be better they for buy you, 20, 30 of them at a time. They don't buy one or two. You know, oh, they're right. going to. Right. And yeah. you know what? And yes, I mean, if you've if we have a retailer that has a customer coming in and asking for it, that's that's the best thing that can happen for us. Okay, great. Yeah, well, we guys, really I appreciate that, Jack. That's uh, thanks a lot for doing that for us. No, man. I mean, that's you know, like I said, I, I keep telling people to get out there and do something that matters. You guys are doing <laughs> it, so that's part of community and, and making the community larger than your neighborhood. That when you see that. And you can help, you do. So, and I don't really mean me there. I mean the audience. Like guys, go out and we just had the guy on last week that has an app for iPhones that tells you whether or not a business is gun friendly or not. I said, well, get the app and just start. Mar- you know, you're going to go places anyway. Just market. Don't you know? Just put down this place sucks. This place is friendly. This place is neutral um, because that helps. Even if you don't buy the paid version, yeah. you're, you're contributing. So if if we all do a little bit everywhere we can, uh, you know, and there's like eighty thousand of us out there because I've been asked recently, like, what's the listenership up to? And it's about eighty thousand downloads a day now. And if one percent, you know, ten percent of that eight thousand people all do one or two things over the next year uh, to further the goals of self sufficiency, preparedness, self reliance. We can make a bigger impact, you know, than, than I, I think most people in the mainstream would believe is possible. And I, I think it is happening. 
Uh, everywhere I go, I'm seeing it now, and you guys are contributing to it, so thanks for that. Well, thank yeah. you. And, yeah, and I think we're getting there, and I think this new generation, I think they're going to be more open to it than anyone. And They better be because they're going to be the exactly. – yeah, they better because they're going to be the ones that are going to deal with the crap if they don't. I mean, exactly. I, and I got this – I'm going to let you say what you want, Jeff, but I do want to say this real quick before I forget it. If you are a 20-something right now and you're thinking your future has a lot of challenges in it, it does – and if you're pissed off at previous generations who screwed it up, that's okay. But if you're going to rely on the people that screwed it up to fix it for you, uh, and you really need to be part of the solution because you're gonna you're gonna be 60 someday, and all the people that are responsible for where we're at will be dead. And that won't do you any good unless you've done something to be part of the solution. And I'm sorry to talk over you, Jeff, but go ahead, sir. No, but that, that's fine. That's close to what I was going to say. I mean, the, the kind of conversations I have with my, my 18- and 20-year-olds right now are things I never thought about at their age. And they are very much more aware of uh, – they seem to be more aware of what's going on and where we could be headed if we're not careful, which – is a segue to one of the things Lori has done is has been very good helping school gardens – and donating oils to school gardens because, of course, they have breaks and everything and can't be in the garden every day. And, and the oil has been very successful helping young people uh, get an interest in uh, in gardening. And also the teachers use it as, as a teaching tool about um, everything from pottery itself to water flowing through a porous, uh, a body, et cetera. So it's been a good thing uh, working with the cultures. kids. And, and learning from other cultures, too. So it's been really good to, that how... Uh, She's donated to uh, a lot of the school gardens here in the Austin area. Awesome. Awesome stuff, guys. Well, again, thank you for being on the air today, and thank you for the uh, the effort made to create a new business. As someone who has a background in, in business creation, I know it's not easy, and I know a lot of people look at a business that's got you know one or two products associated with it and an entrepreneurial couple doing anything. Well, that's just a great idea that must have just happened. Um, <laughs> in some ways, it does because you just kind of find yourself thrown into it because you're like, this is so good, I've got to do it. But it doesn't just happen. Um, it takes massive effort and work and personal faith to build a business. So thank you guys for all of that. Well, thank you, Jack. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right, folks. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko today along with Lori and Jeff Hayes, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. In our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Children.
Yeah.